Opportunity Saturday night at Chitterst to uh, assemble here, practice meditation, listen to the Dhamma. And we've just finished. This is our last day of the of this kind of designated uh, uh, group retreat. So every morning I would uh, give morning reflections uh, because I like I'm a morning person. I like early morning, and uh, I'm not a night person. I don't like night time. Uh, I'm at my. I feel I'm at my best, at my sharpest, early in the morning. <clears throat> this time in the evening, I'm not. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so every week some friend of mine in the United States sends me this uh, through the email this Harper's Magazine News of the Week and it's it's, uh, it's kind of amusing list of, of events uh, international events and that both on a kind of important level of political economic and then the unique, odd uh, circumstances arising, and the kind of absurdity and ridiculousness of of the world. And here, living in Buddhist monasteries, uh, it's like you're kind of like living in an ivory tower. <clears throat> Actually, in a very privileged life, you live it here at Amravati Buddhist monastery. Your life is. Uh, is uh, usually a pretty high level of uh, experience, and uh, you're so you kind of think that you get so used to it that you forget what what's going on in the rest of the world. A bit of in this list of Harper's review is uh, listed all in kind of in in, in rather 
in juxtapositions where where it it, it has its humor but also its sadness because like we've been here sitting here for the past week uh, this beautiful Dharma hall and weather and all these kind of auspicious conditions living uh, you know in such a way that uh, <clears throat> generous support and and assistance uh, for our meditation developing awareness and then you read the Harper's review where it's uh, how many people were murdered in Baghdad and <laughs> human trafficking and drug addicts and and uh, corruption and scandals and and personal oddities and perversions and you name it it lists it it's a page you know of of all the kind of uh, extremities of violence and scandals that uh, have been placed in that category of news of the week. So in uh, one, when you reflect on this you feel quite you know grateful for being able to live in such a way that that uh, you know, with all this other stuff going on in the world, how how it seldom really affects us in any direct way. And if I didn't get the Harper's uh, review every week, I wouldn't know most of it. <laughs> and yet, you hear about you know people being killed and uh, for you know just um, on the streets or policemen or. Um, youth or tragedies or violence, torture. And so these cartoons that the, the Danes, the Danish uh, created around the kind of satirizing uh, Mohammed, and this has been the cause of all kinds of deaths in the past week, you know, on, all over the world. So and this, uh, you know, in so many ways, seeing it's it's both, you know, see how that affects one's own attitude. The Western mind, you know, we think of it is, um, you know, it's it's irreverent, but it also we can see the humor behind it, uh, <clears throat> the satirizing of the sacred, the uh, making fun of things that uh, other people take too seriously, uh, the way we can, you know, even, and in, the, and in a way disparage or, or diminish or, or destroy somebody's, something that is sacred and holy and, and uh, should never be blasphemed against or criticized in any way. So you know just how our culture here is is quite profane one, where we we can make fun of the sacred. We have all kinds of jokes about monks and nuns jokes, uh, making the you know, the absurdity of 
of pious religiosity, of taking holiness too seriously, making fun of the Pope, making fun of Queen Elizabeth, Prince Charles, uh, making fun of uh, Jesus Christ and and um, whatever is is blaspheming against God and all the rest is is allowable and even considered quite uh, funny and and uh, being able to express ourselves and say what we we feel what we think so recognize that this is a cultural conditioning it's uh, put it in the in the category of prof- profane so we don't we don't hold to the sacred so much so in terms of our own practice here at Amravati or at Chitters, just the the living within a tradition a religious tradition and we were talking about this this morning how Western uh, people who become interested in Buddhist meditation sometimes fail to appreciate the the sacredness, the holiness, the blessedness that is oftentimes within, you know, encapsulated within the inner tradition. And so, in, so in a country like Thailand, which is a Buddhist country. To profane the Buddha, to to uh, make cartoons about the Buddha, uh, to profane the Buddha or the king or the queen or any of the royal family is just uh, unthinkable. It just wouldn't do it. It would be such gross, bad taste, so insensitive that the idea you know, would not be particularly, you know, one wouldn't dare do it. But here in England, of course, um, the royal family here is is treated terribly, I think. <laughs> They're continually criticized and made fun of. The churches, the, the 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 image of the vicar, isn't it, is almost a comedy figure. It's a comical kind of parody, you know, of piety and bigotry and and affectedness. Because our culture now, at one time, I suppose, uh, you know, and this wouldn't have been allowed. And we think several, you know, when you go for walks, I lived in London for two years, and and uh, when first coming to England, so, you, you know, I'd go for walks. You know, I lived in in uh, northwest London, the Hampstead area, so you'd go for walks, and you see all these plaques on, you know, tile plaques telling where, you know, what happened here, who, what famous person, artist, writer, politician lived in this house and what happened in this place. And you see plaques of where somebody was hanged, public hanging, and where, you know, being a, a heretic or a blasphemer, we would have been hanged 
probably even being a Buddhist, Buddhist monk, would have been like uh, being a heretic, or you know, could be considered as as a threat to Christianity, because Buddhism and the whole approach of being non-theistic and in the way it is, and we can also be seen worshiping images, bowing down to to graven images. So I remember when I first uh, went to Thailand and first time I had to bow to a Buddha Rupa, kept coming up, you know, I was brought up as a Christian that you shouldn't bow to graven images. This is, this is, uh, you know, stressed uh, in, in Judaism and Christianity and Islam. And here I find myself bowing to, well, this is a graven image, isn't it? And then culturally one can feel this sense of, you know, almost guilt or hesitation or this is something one shouldn't do. And yet on a rational level I was, you know, I had no objection to it and I could, uh, you know, reason it out. But the effect of being emotionally conditioned through the Western attitudes, Western civilization and Christianity, then of course there was, this would bring up this feeling. Kind of, uh, it didn't stop me from doing it and after a while it didn't, the feeling dropped away. So conditioning does, you know, sets, gives, gives us a particular uh, way of looking at something. How do how do you look at this this Buddha image here? You know, and one can uh, see it in terms of aesthetics. Is it beautiful or not? Do you do you, does it do you consider it a work of art or just another Buddha image? Uh, does it? Does it speak to you, or do you just put up with it when you come into the hall? Uh, and uh, how does it affect your your consciousness? So this is like reflecting on the way it is. I remember when I first in Thailand, you know, before I ordained, I went to what Benjamin Borpit, which was one of the kind of very beautiful temples in Bangkok. And it's famous. Its architecture is, is probably, you know, it's uh, this superb architecture. It's called the Marble Temple. It has this cloister where there's just rows of the same Buddha Rupa, hundreds of them in alignment. They're all exactly the same. The same Buddha Rupa all around the cloister. And so my American mind, when I first saw this, you know, I looked, uh, how boring, you know, they're all the same. They're not... Is not anything interesting if, the, if they're just reproducing the same image one after another. What's the point of it? Because American, in, a, in the States, we probably wouldn't do that. We would look at sculpture or imagery more from uh, the aesthetic level and, and, and uh, you know, see, trying to create new and, and original and unique images so that one wouldn't be just a continuous reproduction of the next. And so the the mind conditioned through the American 
aesthetics uh, when uh, when confronted with with uh, what Benjamin Bob hit, which I could appreciate the beauty of the architecture. It's quite a lovely bit of architecture, and that the Thai temples, the way they the Thai develop the the roof of their temples, the roofs of their temples are quite beautiful, graceful roofs, and and then it's a, a covered cladded in marble, white marble. And then these golden images of Buddha. And then a few years later I went back as a monk to Wat Benjamin Barapit and I looked at all these Buddha rupas and I had a totally different response to them. Because I wasn't looking at them from a, from a Western American aesthetic attitude anymore. I was looking at it from a Buddhist. I'd been living in Thailand in the Buddha images and that I'd contemplated them and I began to look at them in a different way, not from from the critical Western mind or from an attitude of a Western person. I find living with Buddha Rupas you know, I find them very uh, as as uh, objects just to live with. For one thing, the Buddha image is uh, is is it's an icon. It's it's an icon. It's a symbol. It has a certain effect on consciousness, and that's why there is a certain code or a certain. You can't just create just an original Buddha image, uh, and and you know and make it look like like Hercules or something like that. It, it's got to have, have the, you know, there's a certain style, like like icon painting, Byzantine icon painting, there's a certain style in, that you have to conform to when you're, when you're uh, painting icons for the, uh, in the Byzantine style. Same with, with uh, Buddha Rupas, whether it's in Thailand or Sri Lanka, Burma, whatever, there's a certain common ground and yet each convey their particular cultures. You know, Thai Buddha Rupas look very different from Burmese ones. But the effect of the Buddha Rupa, at least, is even even uh, ones that are aesthetically not particularly nice or cheap ones. Like the uh, when I lived in Thailand, in those days, uh, they were manufacturing these kind of glass Buddha Rupas. And they were very uh, gaudy, kind of bright red and green and yellow and, and, uh, and very kind of kitsch, you know, in that sense of bad taste from uh, Western aesthetic that, uh, sense. And But yet... In the part of Thailand I lived, the village people found these thought, thought these were you know wonderful, and and they these Buddha Rupa sellers would come and the villagers would buy up these these glass uh, Buddha images. They're about this big, and and sometimes they were kind of rainbow hues or things like this, and and then they proudly present them to us. So like what on a chart, they we get a collection of these of these uh, kind of 
you know, intensely bright colored uh, glass Buddha images that all the Western monks didn't like at all. <clears throat> because we reacted to the fact that it was they weren't particularly well made and they weren't in good taste. But they did follow the iconic form of the, you know, they were in alignment with what Buddha Rupas are supposed to be. So then some of the monks got, you know, I could feel myself even, you know, kind of not feeling quite baffled at what to do because they were presenting these. Obviously the village people were thought this was a great gift and it meant a lot. You know, they probably, you know, for them were quite, it cost a lot of money, but, you know, they were not people that had lots of money to spend. So they'd buy these and then come and give them to to me at Wat Nanachar. And so uh, I felt compelled to put them on the shrine. So in the shrine with the, these uh, glass Buddha rupas, and then some of the monks would just get, take them off. They're terrible. And uh, and then another thing was uh, plastic flowers. Like Westerners don't like plastic flowers, uh, artificial flowers. But in Thailand, they love artificial flowers. And so they'd come and they offer, I remember they offered me uh, these huge kind of plastic sunflowers. And... And, and so there were bouquets of plastic sunflowers in big vases on each side of the shrine. And, and of course, the Western monks said, oh, they're terrible, get them out. And so I began to feel uh, a, a sense of aversion to these Western monks. <laughs> because I thought, you know, this is, uh, you know, this, this, this is... Uh, this is not a matter of good taste, according to my view of good taste. But these people, you know, this is these are offerings from the uh, lay community, and they should be respected. So anyway, I convinced them all, the monks, that at least leave them on the shrine for a while. You know, don't just chuck them out. And uh, and and and, ref- and reflect on it. Pay attention to. To how they affect you when you see uh, one of these glass images uh, in bright uh, red, and it, uh, and you just see this kind of color that that offends your aesthetic sense, and you just see it's manufactured glass, not not very well done, and you uh, you just feel aversion to it. Or if you notice the, if you if you get over the aversion, if you're patient with your own reaction and aversion on the aesthetic level, then you begin to pick up on the, on the iconic quality of Buddha images, because they are they almost all have that iconic quality. Uh, what I call the iconic quality is that they are the human form in state of attention of awareness. So that, you know, like this one here, is, it's, it's eyes are open, it's not in a trance, it's not uh, rejecting anything, it's not interested, it's not kind of involved or absorbed in any object, but it's certainly present in a state of, of um, 
contentment, peacefulness, happiness. And so that in itself, the, the form itself, because it, is, it isn't, doesn't give off kind of, this, you know, Buddha Rupas are even kind of androgynous figures. They're, oftentimes they, they're kind of a combination of both male and female in the, in the bodily forms. So they're not emphasizing the kind of masculine traits or, or feminine traits, but there's a kind of softness and gentleness and yet, you know, it's not totally feminine softness. But it also isn't, uh, you know, emphasizing the, the, the beauty of masculinity as you would idolize it in, in a particularly male icon, a figure of a man as, as, a, as an aesthetic object. So it is... Um, just noticing the effect of this on consciousness, living with Buddha Rupas now for so many years, you know, they're very pleasant objects to, to live with because they do have a, a calming effect. They're the human form, they're, they, they may look like, you know, give that human form in the state of awareness, attention, enlightenment. Now that that alone has a good effect on consciousness, because what we see does affect our our present consciousness. Now, if we just react to it because uh, it, it's it's uh, bright red and the ones like the Burmese, they love to paint. They make these beautiful alabaster rupas or marble ones, and then paint the lips bright red and, and put black eyelashes up here and um, gold earrings and things like this. So so then, uh, and that obviously in Burma is considered beautiful, but uh, in the West we, we don't like that. It looks funny, you know, to have, you know, have the, these kind of bright, like the Buddha was wearing lipstick. And, and wearing false eyelashes, <laughs> which to us do not seem appropriate for you know the the holiness and sacredness of 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 the Buddha who wouldn't stoop to doing anything that silly. In Cambodia. I remember going there a few years ago, and where they the Khmer Rouge had almost destroyed destroyed almost all the Buddha rupas. And this is about ten years ago, I think. And, and they um, and of course the artists, the artisans, and the all the skilled craftsmen had either escaped and gone to live in America or or France. And and then the uh, uh, the ones left, uh, you know, they were the ones they were making Buddha rupas that were really quite hideous. Now if you if you notice the old like Khmer style of Buddha rupa from the uh, Angkor Wat period, that period of civilization, they were brilliant craftsmen in stone, the, the Khmer. And if you've been to uh, Angkor Wat, places like that. 
Uh, or in the Guimet Museum in the in Paris, they have fantastic collection of of beautiful uh, Cambodian uh, Khmer Buddha Rupas. Now they're they're, they're aesthetically beautiful, and if you go to the Guimet Museum, then they are, you know, that's a very posh, very smart museum of oriental art where they display things extremely well. So you go into the Guimet Museum and then they have a, a Cambodian Buddha Rupa in stone with, a, with the light just perfect so that it emphasizes the, the serenity and the atmosphere is one of, that enhances the the form itself, and immediately, you know, going. I remember going in there, just feeling incredibly calm, just looking at this, this, this head of a of a stone Buddha Rupa from Cambodia. But in '96, the the uh, the Cambodian Buddha Rupas that I was looking at, some of them were grotesque. They were so bad. They're made out of cement. And they were so badly done, and so gaudy, you know. So some of them, they had they had the lips bright purple or red, and and eyelashes, and and they were, you know, done sculpted in in concrete, which was it's not a very nice medium anyway. And then they were all kind of they they looked like something you didn't want to bow to. <laughs> you know, so they were offend, they offended the eye, actually. But then I kept, you know, because I, because I am a meditator, then I could bring that into attention, you know, that the, the point of, of the uh, practice is, is the respect for the Buddha and any symbol. And these were, these were attempts at creating Symbols that arouse that that feeling of respect and love and devotion to truth, or whatever way they they you know whatever words they they wanted to use for this experience. Now in. Paris. I remember walking through the parks there uh, because it is one of the world's beautiful cities, and and so then um, noticing the sculpture in the in the public parks around the Guimet Museum, where where uh, all these kind of heroic figures of men, you know, like warrior men with weapons and the kind of really you know fighters and very aggressive looking male figures in in warrior poses and then the females were all very haughty and kind of with their noses up in the air looking very nasty and and so (laughs) you know and the effect of these on consciousness just noticing how how a, a warrior figure affects affects your consciousness or an arrogant looking woman you know I suppose that that these were Figures of important people, you know, queens and so forth, that and, and and they were supposed to look like, you know, I'm better than you, I'm the queen, and and giving off this sense of of power and superiority. 
Well, that has a, an effect on consciousness, which is not peaceful, is it? It didn't make me feel calm. I didn't want to bow, get down on my knees and bow. Survive the, the kings or the queens. But, but, the, uh, but the Khmer statue image in the Gamay Museum, what, I felt this impulse to, to uh, kneel down in the... In, in this museum in Bao. So I'm just expressing or sharing with you my own responses to living with, with icons. And this is what, what we call reflection, I mean, how things do affect us. For one thing, when we look at, at, at things just through aesthetics, that's one way of looking at, at art, isn't it? At this, Buddha image, whether it, it's aesthetic, pleases our aesthetic sense. And that's, you know, whether we find it beautiful and, and, and that according to our worldly views of what is beauty. Then, then we might look at it from a devotional sense. It reminds us of the Buddha. And it doesn't matter if it's, if it's aesthetically pleasing or beautiful. Because the form is uh, is obviously that is obviously Buddha. Whether it has bright red lips and and false eyelashes, you know it's Buddha, uh, and and therefore this brings is a different way of looking at it. Living and then reflecting on the on the actual face, the form, so that just bring it, noticing how this particular form this particular icon, how it affects you. Not to, to say how it should affect you or how you should react to it or res- respond to it, but just notice how it does. In contemplating this, then we realize how sensitive we are, how, how shapes, colors, forms affect consciousness. You know, just like body language, the way people move or look, and that has an effect on, on us. When we we are very visual human beings, most of us are, you know, find our ability to see things. We're very responsive and reactive on that level of sight. Then uh, noticing how certain mannerisms of people affect us. So, just noticing in uh, when I first went to live in Wat Bapo, you know, I was, you know, I'm quite a, you know, I'm much bigger than most than the Thai monks, and then being American, the the, the American way of moving is. Is a, is so much is a, is quite aggressive in the Thai context. Now I had no intention of being aggressive. You know, the, my I was trying to be friendly, uh, like an American tries to be. But I noticed that in when in the monastery, uh, you know, the way I'd move, and I'd walk up to a monk, and he'd go back like this, you know, like just reacting to this. To me, and I took it quite personally. They, well, I, you know, I'm just trying to be friendly, 
and uh, and he's kind of looks like I'm going to attack him. <laughs> and and I thought, what's wrong with these Thai monks? Then I began to, you know, as I lived there in, uh, in with Thai monks for many years before I went back to the States. <clears throat> I condition. I became used to the Thai style, the Thai physiognomy, the way the Thai uh, way the Thai faces. They don't have big noses or usually jutting chins, or they're they're quite you know they have much more unaggressive looking faces and bodies. And even Thai men, you know, the ideal is not to walk like like a warrior and, and kind of an aggressive style, but to train yourself to walk so that you're not uh, frightening people or sending off these aggressive signs. So, like in the Peace Corps, I remember Peace Corps women, American Peace Corps women, found Thai men too feminine because the the American uh, view of manhood was was much more you know, muscular and aggressive, and 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 the way we we walk and move and and act is tend to walk right up to you and and like this, all shoulders and big jutting noses and chins, <laughs> and and this this if you're used to the Thai aesthetic, this is these are all signs of aggression. They they immediately just react to to these to these uh, forms. And I'm sure it wasn't conscious in the sense of they, I'm, I'm sure they realized I wasn't being aggressive, but it's just a, a natural reaction to to the signs you're, you're, you're picking up, signs of aggression. And just notice in, in how mindfulness, the more mindful you are, you begin to recognize this in, in how we do affect each other, just the way we move and walk and look. Then the story about in uh, the retreat center up at Amravati, you know, the the uh, this long narrow room when you're sitting in the middle. And then we used to be much more strict, like putting all the women on one side and all the men on the other. So all the women meditators would be on one side of, of me, and then the men on the other side. And so then I'd come in and. Uh, I'd sit down, and then there, and I noticed that that the women, uh, women, most of the women would be looking at me like this, and kind of with a very with a smiling expression, and and it was much more, you know, it was a, it was very pleasant to look at them, and the men would be sitting there like this. <laughs> And so I noticed when I looked at the men, I felt this kind of, I don't want to look at them, you know, like, they don't like me. And I looked at the women, they were... So I began to notice that I talked mainly to the women, to one side. <laughs> so when I, when I realized that, I, I decided I'd mix them up so when the problem would dissolve. Well, mindfulness allows us to observe the way things are, you know, which is not seeing it in terms of 
what should or shouldn't be, but the way it actually is, how things do affect us. We are, these are very sensitive forms. Uh, and, you know, it's all about sensitivity. This is a sense realm. The human form is a sensitive form uh, through sight, through sound, smell, taste, touch, thinking. Pleasant thoughts, happy thoughts affect us. Un, uh, depressing thoughts, negative thoughts affect consciousness. So when we when we develop our critical faculties, like we this this tendency, like making fun of of Islam or Mohammed, right? Making cartoons, it's there's something quite negative about that. Making fun, <clears throat> uh, putting down something like that, seeing. Islam or Mohammed as making them look foolish or silly. Now this this uh, this can be quite funny and humorous. I can see the humor in it, but also it's a it's a negative kind of humor. It's making fun of something, and so this is what you know the the Muslim. Many Muslims are so offended by that because. In, in that's there's that's a very strong identity and a sense of of sacredness to them that they, that's something you don't make fun of you don't disparage and so uh, recently uh, uh, an Italian prominent Italian uh, may you know had some T-shirts made with these cartoons on the front and so this upset some. Uh, Muslims in Libya, and they they had a riot yesterday and killed about eleven people uh, protesting outside the Italian embassy. So this is what happens, you know, when when we don't, when we're not mindful, when we're not sent, when we don't develop that kind of sensitivity, then we we tend to just react to each other, irritate each other, or blame each other. You know, we we aren't aware of of how I I'm not aware of how I'm affecting how what I say or how I look or how that affects others because we are living in the on this planet together and so we do affect each other and that's just the way it is it's the, being a sensitive form in the universe. The, the weather affects affects this, you know. Whether it's you know on a sunny day, it has a different mood than on a than on a cold, wet, rainy day. And the awareness of that is is seen in terms of in in terms of Buddhist meditation, reflecting on the way it is. When we talk about the mood or state of mind, how the conditions do affect the conscious moment. It's like this, and this is a, in this. You know, this is about change. It's impermanent, but it is the way it is. Now, notice how you know the Buddhist samana affects affects us, like being a, a shave, shaving the head and wearing the, these kind of robes as a certain effect on consciousness. 
Now in Thailand, which is it's the you know the national religion, everybody's used to seeing Buddhist monks. So it's part of just the you know that what is absolutely normal. And I remember one time, you know, when I lived in Thailand before coming to England, uh, Thai people would say, oh, you know, it's just so wonderful to see a Buddhist monk come on the alms round. And when we established Wat Nana Chat, the, some of the villages that were quite far away used to beg us to come on an alms round so that they could put food in our alms bowls. And, and they is how important it was to see the monks walking on the alms round in the morning. And so I just, you know, I heard that, but I didn't, I didn't have any particular feeling for that particular event. You know, being a monk myself, and I see them, you know, live with them all the time, that's all I see, Buddhist monks. <laughs> so then one time, I was uh, in the hospital in Bangkok, and uh, I was there for about a week in a hospital. And I was up, was on the sixth floor of, of a building of the hospital. And, uh, and, and it wasn't a monastic hospital. So I was on a ward with uh, a male ward, but it was all laymen. And I was the only monk. And so one day I'm, get up out of bed in the morning, early in the morning, look out the window, and I see a bhikkhu on the arms round. I see him from the... I'm looking down into the street, and this bhikkhu, this monk's coming, walking on the street, and I feel this... Suddenly, this... Oh, it's wonderful to see a monk on the arms. And then I understood what the what these villagers how what, how much it meant to them. So it, it's uh, and in in Bangkok, you know, as much as people complain about Bangkok, you know, the kind of overdeveloped modern city and, and polluted and whatnot, actually, in the early morning, it's it's a it's a different realm when the monks are on the alms round in Bangkok. People are still, no matter how worldly, materialistic, or busy their lives are, they all, Thai people always have time to go out and offer food. And and when I'm living in Bangkok, I usually go on a route where uh, I don't meet so many people because I can't carry all the food that people want to give me. <laughs> and I have this small alms bowl now anyway. But people are so generous that they have to come back with with plastic bags full of stuff, you know, carrying like this. So then I have to have a, you know, if a layman comes with me, I'm thinking of getting one of those uh, trolleys in a supermarket. <laughs> uh, this is still an average in Bangkok, you know, so that there is this, uh, you know, in the in the morning at dawn, when the monks are on the alms round, it's you feel this sense of 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 this devotion. Something really beautiful is happening in this in this city. And, and then where we stay in Bangkok is very built up, so it's all cement and and 
tall buildings and whatnot. And so I like the going out in the morning uh, barefoot, walking on cement up to this main street, Sukhumvit Road, which is a, one of the main thoroughfare through Bangkok. It's got this elect, this sky train above this huge uh, kind of viaduct for this train, uh, electric train that goes by. So, and, and then these lorries zooming past. Everything's moving like this. And here I am, you know, barefoot with an arms bow walking down this, this main thoroughfare. I quite like this feeling, you know, of, of this, like something, something from the past, from the time of the Buddha, is still operating within this very modern, very, you know, overdeveloped city that is all cement and glass and steel. And then, then that brings out the also in the in the people. It's, 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 it takes effort, doesn't it, to prepare things and go out and offer them. You have to. It isn't just you know an accident. They have to plan to do that, get ready, and and uh, make put forth the effort. And then the joy that's involved in this exchange, where the the lay people put the food into the alms bowl. Well, this is just a very beautiful custom, you know. It's a, it gives a, a quality to a culture, a sense of, of uh, it's a beautiful thing to, to, uh, to see and to be a part of. In a city like Bangkok, it's so easy to just not do things like that, get so involved in your own life, because life in Bangkok is quite difficult. It's, you know, it's, it's traffic jams and and pollution and so forth. People are very stressed and have, you know, have to, it takes sometimes, it's very difficult to, to move across the city to get from one place to another with any, in any, you know, very quickly because of all the, the traffic. So life in the modern city isn't like in London. It's not so easy. It's not a, an easy place to live because there's so many things uh, you know, that interfere and make life stressful. So then, last year, I remember in Amarvati, you know, the temple finished, and then my kuti, I walked from my kuti, you know, and over to the cloister, enter the temple, very quiet, beautiful atmosphere in the temple, the big golden image sitting there. I think this is this is superlative. This is life at its very best. Just this every morning I get to do this. And then in the afternoon talking to lay people about you know commuting from Luton to London. <laughs> Some people have to spend two hours going and two hours going going to London, and two hours going back home every day. That's four hours of your life sitting in a car, commuting. That would be terrible. And yet that, that is not unusual, or that isn't just the odd person. 
And here I, you know, get up. It doesn't take, you know, two or three minutes. I'm out of my cootie walking over to And then they, then they, uh, offering of food and, and everything like this. So, you, you know, in some ways, the alms mendicant life, you know, you think of, of living a life of, a, of an alms mendicant, Buddhist monk, this is the irony of it, is, is that you kind of give up everything, you know, so you, you, you don't have money, you don't, you're dependent on, the, on others for the basic requisites. And yet, uh, the irony of it is that my monastic life has it always seems to bring me these. these uh, it has its own aesthetic beauty to it, the, the style, the quality of of this tradition, uh, and and the kind of uh, beauty it offers as a, as a way of living as a human being in the modern time, and so. It, and then coming to live in, in here in England, so you know the places we live in are quite lovely in terms of natural scenery and environment. And during the rough times, like we talk about the old days here at Chithurst, when Chithurst House was a derelict building, people used to feel sorry for us. But it was really quite a lot of fun in those days. It, uh, you know, you, it has its hardships, you know, sometimes, but, but those are, those are, you know, those are, those give that sense of, of, uh, it's a, the hardships that oftentimes you, you, you're most grateful for. Well, you have to rise up and, and you just can't, you aren't living here, just uh, taking it for granted as a, and, and having a, an easy life. But you have to put forth the effort. You have to rise up. You have to give yourself to something that sometimes you don't, you don't, you don't want to be bothered doing. You, you'd rather not have to conform or put forth the effort. And yet you do. I find that always brings out this, uh, that, that this always brings out this good side of me, I can. I realize that I can rise up. I can. I, I'm. I can be better than sometimes I feel like being, and the the uh, monastic life does offer that. I have to be better than sometimes I feel like I feel like being. I have to rise up to give myself, and and in doing so, that's the energy that that effort which is is uh, also the, a blessing because just living life uh, as uh, just as for your own convenience uh, as easily as possible without putting any effort into it is one just gets depressed and I know in uh, people that have all the comforts and privileges of wealth and position you know, oftentimes they're quite depressed because their life has no, it's not challenging in any way. They they can just 
you know, rest in this comfort and and uh, security, and they don't have to rise up. The same with meditation. You know, like this morning we were talking about putting forth the effort. You know, to when during the difficult times in in your life where things aren't going so well, um, where there's a lot of conflict in the community, where people are criticizing you, or there's uh, a lot of dis- discontentment and complaints and people disrobing and and people blaming and things like this. So then these times, you know, I've deliberately use these times for putting forth the effort to be aware. So a few years ago there was one of these patches for me where it was kind of the the persona non grata. You know, here I'm a upachaya teacher and then then there was this uh, kind of uh, under the hard light of the critical minds of all the people I'd ordained. <laughs> they were no longer enchanted with me. <clears throat> and so there was this uh, this sense of, uh, you know, negative feeling and, and uh, betrayal and disappointment and sadness and, and blame that I had. And then, but knowing that to be mindful of this, was the path. I find when life does get that way, then there's a part of me that wants to just follow this, you know, go along with the mood, doesn't want to put forth the effort. Wants to just, you know, oh, these people are a waste of time and I should never have come to England and it would be better if I stayed in Thailand and I'm going to go back to Thailand, where people do respect me. I'm appreciated in Thailand. And then, then, uh, then but knowing better, because the insight through meditation, putting forth the effort, rising up, looking at this, acknowledging this feeling, you know, I wasn't suppressing it or or being stiff upper lip or heroic about it, any of this, or just trying to ignore it or suppress it, but actually using my hurt feelings, self-pity and, and disappointment and despair, receiving it, noticing it, being with it, and then this, would, this was uh, developing the path in the midst of adversity. Because I've seen so many people fail at this point in life where it gets really bad and they just, they leave or disrobe or things like that. They they don't rise up and use their disillusionment. Like being a monk or a nun uh, in a monastery, you, it is, you know, you first you're quite inspired by it and and so you you see it through through love, inspiration, respect. 
and then after a while it kind of peaks and then you 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 feel you get very critical of it it seems to be a pattern you know with anything in life the the romantic period the the uh the honeymoon period the 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 interesting and then eventually peaks and then it goes into boredom disillusionment uh criticism The same applies to being a monk or a nun. It, the cycle still operates. But that's why it's so important to encourage you to rise up. It, you know, not just, you know, glorify in the, in the romantic period, the, the honeymoon and the inspiration. But when you do lose interest, boredom, and you see all the kind of things you don't like, and and in yourself or in the people around you, that's the time to also put forth the effort. Because at that time, if you if you're willing to do that, then you you uh, you know that's a very strengthening period. Having done that, then you come out feeling much stronger, more confident, for having weathered the storm, having been able to to learn from uh, the other side the dark side of the moon <laughs> and then more and more now I feel like <clears throat> there's a, a kind of balance that I'm not depending on inspiration, nor afraid of of uh, things falling apart, uh, or of everything going wrong, or disappointments, or losses in the on the on the uh, material on the material side or personal side. One strength and confidence in awareness, which is isn't, you know, isn't a condition that depends on things being good and going well or, and it doesn't, isn't, you know, precluded by everything falling apart. So this is what you can trust, what you can really uh, value as, uh, you know, in this practice of meditation is this awareness. And it prepares you to learn from life the praise and blame, the successes, failures, happiness, suffering that is, is, you know, a part of every human lifetime. We have to deal with these eight worldly dhammas. Uh, That's just part of the, the package that you get for being born as a human being. So see that this opportunity of meditation is being able to grow with this, being mature, balance this through awareness, so that you're not just a helpless victim of worldly conditioning or these eight worldly dhammas. Otherwise, if we don't know this, then we are. We're just very dependent, very reactive, very frightened because we know that even though things are going well they can change 
even the best relationship can fall apart or the, the one we depend on emotionally can die very suddenly or things can, you know, what was once stable, having money and property and position can fall apart in the next year. These, the worldly conditions are subject to so many other conditions that we have no control over. So the aim of meditation then is to find that which is you can really trust and develop that. And the only possible thing that one can trust that I, from my experience is the awareness. Because that is the still point or the stability, the unshakable deliverance that the Buddha was talking about in the scriptures. So I offer this as a reflection. <laughs>